Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Conan Doyle Medical Detective Lecture for tonight. I'm Jonathan Seckel. I'm currently the Dean of the College of Medicine and Veterinary Medicine, and it's my privilege to introduce both the speaker tonight and also just generally the, 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 the substance of these lectures. I'm delighted to see so many members of the public here, some students from schools perhaps, and even maybe one or two future medical students. Anybody interested in the thought of going to medical school one day? Well, not, not tempted. So Conan Doyle was a medical student here. Um, he probably, the timing is a little difficult. He, this place was being built as he was a medical student, so it will have opened as he was graduating. So he probably sat in one of those seats and probably listened to the great and the good of medicine of his day giving talks. So you're sitting in a piece of history, which is nice. Darwin was another famous medical student here, but he wasn't taught here because he came well before Conan Doyle and, of course, was famously put off by anatomical dissections in the lecture theatre in the old medical school in Infirmary Street. But Conan Doyle was inspired. He was very much taken with medical science and he was famously taught by Dr. Joseph Bell, who was a, um, a forensic surgeon. Nowadays, he'd be called a pathologist. And he was incredibly precise. He had incredible powers of observation, was very acute, could tell where somebody came from, their occupation, just by peering at them. You can immediately see where Conan Doyle began, got the role model for his famous fictional detective, Sherlock Holmes. Okay, so that's the past. Now let's fast forward, straight forward to today. We don't have forensic surgeons anymore, but we certainly have pathologists. And one of the world's most famous pathologists is going to talk to us today. James Ironside is professor of neuropathology and has had a stellar career in, in his subject. He's been um, consultant histopathologist both in Lothian and in Tayside, but is most famous for heading the neuropathology labs and the National Creutzfeldt-Jakob Disease Surveillance Unit, which has been based here in Edinburgh. He has made some very seminal discoveries indeed. Most famously, of course, the discovery of something which got very much into the press and which he'll tell us about today, which is the variant of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease that came potentially from our consumption of cows infected with mad cow disease. And that's, I hope, what he's going to explain to us today. James is a, is a phenomenal role model for his subject. Pathology was always thought of as dry, but the ability to be a detective in that subject, to really get to the heart of disease, to spot the new diseases as they come up, is, of course, incredibly exciting. And it's what attracts the best and the brightest to the subject. James is no exception. He got a CBE in the Queen's Honours a few years ago for his contribution to medical science. And I hope we will enjoy his lecture this evening. James, the floor's yours. Uh, it's very good of uh, Jonathan to mention uh, the fact that I'm a pathologist, and uh, this, uh, he may not know this, and probably you don't either, but this week is National Pathology Week. And uh, uh, just purely by coincidence, the, the, this uh, event is occurring in National Pathology Week. So this is a week that's intended to uh, promote pathology within medicine. And if anyone uh, in the audience has uh, any uh, questions or anything else that they want to find out about pathology, then you can please email me uh, here uh, or uh, speak about it afterwards. So uh, I'm very privileged to give this lecture, part of the Medical Detective series, and I'm going to try and illustrate how we use uh, detective skills in pathology, skills of observation, evidence, analysis, and deduction uh, to hunt out uh, the truth about various diseases. 
And we're having a, a detective's approach tonight because tonight we're on the hunt of a killer. And these killers are killers like no others, very difficult to identify, very hard to find and to track down. But when they attack, it is lethal. So I'm going to cover, firstly, the suspects, what is a prion, then we'll move on to the crime scene, how do we diagnose prion disease, I'll speak then about the serial killers, and uh, you've already heard about BSE and variant CGD, but there's a very interesting one you may not have heard of called Kuru, and I'm going to say more about that later. And then finally, I'll speak about the accomplices that are involved in these crimes and how we suspect that prions or prion-like agents might be involved in other diseases. So, without further ado, like Sherlock, we're on the the hunt, let's begin. What are these diseases we call prion diseases? Well, they've been known for a long time, and in animals, probably they've been around for hundreds of years. They're fatal neurological diseases, uh, and unlike many other severe neurological diseases, they occur not just in humans, but in animals, and we've got some really good animal models of these diseases, much better than the ones we have for, for example, Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. And unlike these diseases, uh, the prion diseases are transmissible. They can be transmitted from one individual to another naturally uh, in, in the animal kingdom, sheep, for example, with scraping, and experimentally by inoculation or by ingestion of the agent. However, if you're doing experiments, you need to choose your experimental model very carefully because the incubation period of these diseases is far longer than for most other infectious diseases. And in humans, it can be up to decades before the clinical features of the disease emerge. So if you're doing a PhD, you have around three years to do it. If you don't choose your model correctly, you're going to have no, no results by the end of your three years. So that's something you need to watch out for. These diseases are very difficult to diagnose because there's no conventional host response. There's no immune response of, of, of the ordinary type, so we can't look for antibodies to these diseases. And as I'll explain later, there's no DNA or RNA associated with the agents, so the, the modern molecular biological techniques can't help us either. So we're really up against a challenge here. What has been known for many years about these diseases is the brain is the target organ, and they cause this spongy degeneration I'm showing you here. This, for those of you who are not familiar, this is a brain. And we're zooming in on high power to the gray matter of the brain to look under the microscope. This is the spongy change, giving the old name for these, or the, the name that was used for these diseases, transmissible spongiform encephalopathies. And under the electron microscope, you can see the spongy change there. So how do we find the culprits for these diseases? How can we identify prions? Uh, like Sherlock, we have to hunt very hard to find them, and we use uh, techniques such as ordinary microscopy here to look at, at a section of tissue under the glass, or we can use a much bigger machine, an electron microscope, which is much more powerful. We can actually see inside the cells. We can see what's going on inside the cells, and we can try and find uh, what traces we can of these agents. So, what is known about these diseases? Well, the early experimental work on, on the animal disease, Scrapey, found that the agent was very small indeed, smaller than any viruses. It accumulates uh, and transmits, as I said, following inoculation uh, or ingestion. And the brain is the target organ, and infectivity accumulates at highest levels in the brain. And the levels of infectivity in the brain are really very high indeed. We're speaking of, of over one million infectious units in one gram of tissue. That's far higher than most other infectious diseases. The agent, unfortunately, is very resistant to our standard methods for decontamination. So procedures that will kill off viruses or bacteria, such as high temperature, fixation in formaldehyde, 
even ionizing radiation does not kill these agents off. So they're very difficult to inactivate. And on the basis of these unusual properties, it was suggested as long ago as 1967 that the agent might just be composed of a protein, and that would explain why it was so resistant to all these uh, techniques we use for viruses or bacteria. And this idea of an infectious protein was then developed by Stanley Prusner, and he published the prion hypothesis in 1982, subsequently was awarded a Nobel Prize for medicine for this hypothesis. Some would say that even now it's a little premature that he was awarded the Nobel Prize because there's an argument, is, is it really true? Is the hypothesis proven? And I'll come back to that later. But the hypothesis states that the prions causing these diseases are transmissible particles that have no nucleic acid, there's no DNA or RNA, and they're composed entirely of a modified protein, the prion protein. And what happens in the disease is that the normal version of this protein, which we have in all our bodies, particularly in the brain, converts, it changes its shape to a, a different conformation, a different formation where it has a high beta sheet structure. I'll show you that in a minute. So these diseases are diseases of protein folding or protein misfolding, as it turns out. And this idea of conversion and change, of course, is not a new one. And if I can introduce another very famous author who was a graduate from Edinburgh University, Robert Louis Stevenson, of course, not in medicine, but in law, ultimately. Uh, he uh, was very famous for this story of uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where there was a conversion, although it was a reversible conversion, at least initially, but ultimately it was irreversible from uh, Dr. Jekyll there, the good guy, to Mr. Hyde there, the bad one. And that uh, principle is, seems to be what's happening with this protein in this disease. So we have the good guy here on the left, the normal version of the prion protein, which is present in our brains, it's present in many tissues. It's uh, soluble, it's easy to work with, it's very sensitive to uh, enzymes to be degraded. But the abnormal version, the bad guy, has a different shape. It's got much more of this blue structure here, beta sheet. Beta sheet allows the protein to aggregate and form stacks of what we call amyloid in the brain. It is aggregated, it's very difficult to work with, it's insoluble, and it's relatively resistant to the enzymes that degrade the normal version of the protein. And one of the problems you have with these diseases is that there are very few ways of distinguishing the normal from the abnormal one because it's only a change in shape. It's not a change in the actual structure or change in the amino acids that build the protein. And we and others have been trying very hard to develop reagents that can tell the difference between one and the other. So if anyone has any good ideas at the end of this lecture how we might do that, please let me know because things are desperate. But what we can do to help us identify this protein is to employ another detective technique, and that is one of fingerprinting. Now, fingerprinting, particularly in Scotland, has had a bit of a, a tricky history recently, but this form of fingerprinting is, I think, much more reliable. And it looks at the structure of the abnormal prion by, after digesting it with enzymes, you can't digest it completely. You leave a core here, so here, in this diagram, we have the before and the after uh, of the enzyme. You can see the core is here, and we see these different bands. And these different bands mean two things. Firstly, the enzyme is cleaving the protein in a different position, so there are two major differences in structure. We call type 1 and type 2. It's not rocket science. It's fairly straightforward. And then there are differences in what we call the glycosylation of the protein, where sugars are added to the protein in different positions. And these different bands uh, reflect the differences in these glycosylation sites on the protein. So by using this technique, we can classify prions uh, into these different groups. And th this is a very important point I'll come back to later. 
the life cycle of the prion, how does this conversion occur and where does it occur? If there's no nucleic acid involved, how, how does that work? Well, the short answer is we don't know. But what, what seems to happen is something like this. This is a diagram of a cell. The surface of the cell is in yellow. And on, in this blow up here, you can see the normal protein sits on the surface of the cell, performing its important functions. We don't really know what the important functions are, but probably cell signaling and, and even uh, uh, copper binding, as you can see here, is very important. So probably a role in a response to stress of the cell. The normal protein is here. And in the disease, it interacts with the abnormal version in red, and then it converts. So you, have, you start with the normal one, you get this interaction with the abnormal one, and this induces the change in the normal one, so it becomes abnormal. They can form these aggregates that occur in the brain, or they can be, there are attempts to break down the abnormal protein. These attempts ultimately are unsuccessful. The protein is toxic to the cell and the cell dies. So the cause of death in these diseases is death of the nerve cells in the brain because of the, of the accumulation of this toxic protein. And if we could find out a way of blocking this conversion or, or actually turning the whole thing back, then that would be a big step forward. And uh, perhaps some of the PhD students in the audience might like to consider how that might occur. However, Prion protein doesn't do this alone, and this uh, title is not my title. This is actually a title of a paper published in a very high-profile journal called Nature, Prions and Their Partners in Crime. And the, the idea here is that uh, the biological evidence from experiment, experimental models suggests that host-derived nucleic acids, perhaps a bit of RNA from the animal or the human that it's in, or other molecules seem to be crucial in getting this conversion to go. So in other words, conversion of the protein is necessary to drive these diseases, but the conversion alone is probably not sufficient. Something else is required, and there have been a number of other uh, suggestions as to which proteins might out, which molecules might be chaperones for these, and one or two of them are here. Laminin is one, fibronectin is another. But this is another interesting area that we, we need to do more work on just now. The final area of difficulty, it's a very interesting point, is the fact that prions occur in different strains. Now, we're all familiar with different strains of viruses and bacteria, and at this time of year we think of what new strain of influenza is going to spring out and get us, uh, since it didn't quite manage to do it fully last year. It's probably mutating away this year. Um, but different strains of prions are identified, and they were identified by workers in Edinburgh in the neuropathogenesis unit, and, and we're really pleased in the CJD unit, we have these colleagues that we can work with uh, who have these wonderful experimental models to try and answer some of the questions that we raise. And they found that if you transmit uh, different strains of prions to mice, because there's no other way of culturing them uh, reliably at present, uh, then you can identify different properties. Some have long incubation periods, some have short incubation periods, others are perhaps intermediate, some attack one area of the brain, the hindbrain, the others will attack the frontal area of the brain. And these properties are very carefully maintained. So they're very stable properties. And one of the big challenges for the protein-only hypothesis is how can a protein agent alone encompass these different strains? Because there's no DNA or RNA to mutate to allow the development. And that is one major challenge that the protein hypothesis has not yet answered, or at least as far as I know, it hasn't yet answered. So we'll move on now to these diseases in humans. I'll say a little bit about these, and then we'll move on soon to the serial killers. So the animal diseases we are familiar with in, in the UK is scrapie, which is endemic. It's been around for many hundreds of years. It was blamed, I think, originally on the Spanish, who apparently sent Scrapie-infected sheep to the UK in the 1700s, and they infected the whole of the national flock. Whether that's true, I don't know. 
In America, there was a big problem in North America with this disease called chronic wasting disease, which is a prion disease occurring in elk, and it seems to be very infectious. It seems to be spreading throughout the population of both wild deer and elk and, and, and uh, farm deer in the USA, and we don't know. So if you go on a holiday to the Rocky Mountains and see something like this staggering towards you, I would beware at all costs. BSE is a uniquely uh, British product, uh, something that we shouldn't be particularly proud of, but I'll come back to that later. And, and recent work on these diseases is now recognizing atypical forms of scraping, atypical forms of BSE. Are these pathogenic to humans? We, we, we don't really know. Human diseases, they have many long and lengthy names, and I apologize for the names, not, not my creation, but they're generally named after people like Kreutzfeldt and Jacobs, who in the 1920s uh, described patients with these diseases, two very serious gentlemen you can see down here. Uh, Professor Kreutzfeldt, however, is on rather shaky ground here because the review of Kreutzfeldt's original case has probably led to our conclusion now, or at least uh, Colin Masters concluded that probably isn't actually a case of what we would call CJD. So it shows uh, that you can become famous uh, for getting it wrong. And that's something that, uh, a point that is not lost on us in the, the CJD unit. And I'll say a little bit about these diseases, Kuru uh, and variant CJD later. Uh, fatal insomnia is another interesting disease. It's one I sometimes wish, uh, begin to think that I'm suffering from uh, in my old age, but uh, hopefully not. How do we diagnose these diseases? How can our neurologists suspect them? They are devastating neurological diseases. They are progressive, they're relentless. The commonest symptom is dementia, which is very progressive, not over five or 10 years like Alzheimer's disease. We're speaking of uh, two, three or four months uh, resulting in death. They're terrible diseases. The patients have many other symptoms, incoordination, ataxia, unsteadiness, other movement disorders, visual problems, and they end up in this horrible uh, akinetic state. They can't move, they can't speak. It, it really is a terrible illness to witness. And uh, the diagnosis in the early stages particularly is very difficult. How do we, what tests can we do to help diagnose these diseases? Well, we can look for proteins in the CSF, and this is a, a protein profile uh, from one patient, the CJD, showing positive labeling for this, not the prion protein, but another protein, 14.3.3. We can do tests, including measuring the electrical activity of the brain in the electroencephalogram. And I'm no expert on this, uh, and I hope no one else in the audience is either, but I will explain to you that what we're looking for here are these uh, spike waves, you can see them here, that occur at very regular intervals. And when this occurs, it's very characteristic of CJD. We can now also uh, perform brain scans, MRI scans, which show typical patterns. But as a pathologist, I have to say the gold standard for diagnosis is examination of the brain. And uh, autopsy is very important in, in confirming the diagnosis in CJD to look for the spongy change and then to do the fingerprinting of the, the prion protein. And I have a fingerprint expert in my team, Dr. Mark Head, and uh, I rely on him uh, and his colleagues, many of whom are here, uh, to uh, give me uh, this wonderful help. Like many other neurological diseases, there is a strong genetic component to these diseases, and uh, here is uh, a diagram of the gene that makes this protein, the prion protein gene, which is on chromosome 20 in humans. And a number of abnormalities have been identified in this gene, and some of these are, are, are marked in black, and these are areas of, muta of uh, mutations or substitutions in the gene which are associated with inherited forms of the disease. And uh, strangely, these diseases can be inherited because they're genetic, but they can also be transmissible. And the, that, I think, provides perhaps some of the best evidence that it might be a protein-only disease. However, there are lots of arguments about what the genetic mutations mean. Is it just affecting susceptibility, or, or is it something else? 
And right in the middle of the protein, the only one I want you to focus on is position 129. And in position 129, there is a variability, a polymorphism, as we call it, between methionine or valine. And this is important because it affects susceptibility and uh, other factors uh, of these diseases. Here we are in the normal population. It's a bit like blood groups. You can be an A, an AB, or, a, or, or an O in terms of your blood groups. So here we have another polymorphism. You can be MM, methionine, methionine, valine, valine, or MB. And in the normal population here, half of us are MV. Just over a third are MM, the rest are VV. But in the, the commonest form of this disease, sporadic CJD, there are relatively few MV and increased numbers of MM and also increased numbers of VV. So there seems to be a genetic imbalance and perhaps these individuals here are more susceptible to these diseases. Indeed, I'm often asked, do I know what my genotype is uh, because I handle uh, material from these cases, am I susceptible? I, I, I don't know and I don't think I want to know actually. I just assume I am susceptible than take the appropriate precautions. So, I'll move on now from a brief introduction to the diseases and how we detect them to some really gripping stories, I think. And one of these is Kuru. Now, this is a story that in many ways is so bizarre you couldn't make it up. I don't think even Arthur Conan Doyle could think up something like this. So here we are. This is Papua New Guinea. And in the northern highlands, which are beautiful, as you can see here, there are large numbers of rather isolated tribes which live essentially a Stone Age existence, and some of them are, are still uh, living uh, close to that. But one of them, the Foray tribe, was afflicted by this disease they call Kuru, which means to shiver or to tremble. It's a neurological disease. And by the time it was investigated in the 40s and 50s, it was found that this strange disease was actually the commonest cause of death of women and children in this tribe, despite all the other terrible tropical diseases that were going on around there. And it was related to the practice, which we find difficult to understand, but uh, when members of this tribe died, the body of the deceased was eaten by the other members of the tribe as a sign of respect for, for the dead person. It was a very important part of their ritual. And as well as consuming uh, the, the flesh, the brain was, was eaten and, and there are witnesses who have been there and they say there's no doubt that they saw this, this happening. And it was eventually found out, I'll, I'll explain how, that Kuru uh, was uh, identified as a, a, a transmissible disease and it killed uh, thousands of members of this tribe in the 20th century and probably many more in previous centuries. We don't know how many more until this practice was stopped when the Australians uh, became responsible for the government of Papua New Guinea, they persuaded the tribes to stop doing this and then the disease began to decline. But Kuru was only declared, declared extinct officially a couple of years ago, which means that if they stopped doing this in the 50s, the incubation period of the disease can last as long as 50 years and that, that is truly remarkable. So what can we learn from Kuru? Well, one thing we can learn, it's very important to read the literature. You can see here uh, Sherlock and Dr. Or Dr. Watson is reading the literature, I think, for Sherlock doesn't actually read literature. He just gleans what he can from it. And one thing we can learn is that uncontrolled human-to-human -human transmission of these diseases can result in widespread disease, and we have to bear this in mind. Secondly, there are severe genetic influences on the incubation period. It was found... Uh, in the Kuru tribe, by the time they were able to study these, these uh, people in the 1950s, that most people with the MM genotype had been killed off. There were very few left in the tribe, and those surviving tended to be M, uh, MV and VV, and of the ones who developed the disease, the MV had the longest incubation period. And this is a sort of bizarre experiment set up, uh, and these are the conclusions. But by reading the literature, one person, a veterinary pathologist called Hadlaw, recognized that the pictures of the brain that showed in the articles on Kuru were very similar to those in the sheep disease he was familiar with, Scrapie. 
and he actually wrote a letter to the Lancet saying, I think these two diseases might be related and why don't you try to transmit Kuru because the, the actual cause of it wasn't really fully appreciated. This was done and in 19, uh, 1966 Kuru was transmitted uh, and was, was shown to be a transmissible spongiform encephalopathy. And then after that, the similarities with CJD and other prion diseases were recognized uh, later on in the 60s, and this family of diseases uh, grew together. So we can learn a lot from Kuru, and a lot we can learn applies to this disease, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, BSE, or mad cow disease. And this really was, here's Sherlock getting a bit of bad news from coming, someone rushing into his room. BSE really was a huge piece of bad news. Identified in the 1980s in cattle in the UK with these terrible neurological symptoms. There was a while, the older members of the audience will recall, on every news program it seemed there was some sort of cattle floundering around uh, on a farm. Uh, this is the pathology of BSE. You can see these big spongy holes that even inside the nerve cells of these cows. This had never been noted in cattle before. It didn't seem to relate to scraping. What on earth was going on? Well, a very good piece of epidemiological work was done on BSE to find out what was the common factor linking these herds of cattle across the country with this new disease. And the common factor was this animal feed. What happened to these cows after they died and were sent to the slaughterhouse? I'm afraid they didn't um, go to the big pasture in the sky. I'm afraid what was left went to the rendering factory. And in the rendering factory, the cattle, what was left of the cattle carcasses were cooked at high temperature to make two products, one of which meat and bone meal used for a number of purposes, fertilizer for roses apart from anything else, uh, and animal feed. It was a cheap source of protein which was fed particularly to dairy cattle to boost the milk yield. And actually it's a form of cannibalism. That, that, that these cattle were experienced. Cattle are vegetarians, they're not, not designed to eat large amounts of animal protein, and this is what happened. Not only was this animal feed fed to cattle, of course, then the cattle died and, and the whole thing was recycled. So BSE became a very efficient pathogen for cattle. It was also fed to animals in, in zoos. Uh, so in London Zoo, you had kudu and nyala, other antelopes with this new disease, and even went into cat food uh, and to, to wild cats in zoos who, who ate cattle carcasses. And I was surprised as a human neuropathologist to be presented one day with a, a lion brain from Edinburgh Zoo, an old cat who suddenly uh, killed its mate and was euthanized, and this, this lion had died with uh, feline spongiform encephalopathy. Now, what was the link between these diseases? How can we show the link? Well, the next bit of detective work was done in Edinburgh by Maura Bruce and her colleagues, and she transmitted these diseases to mice, and they showed the strain of the agent was the same, regardless of whether it came from a, a cat, a cow, or an antelope. It was the same strain of agent linking all these diseases together. That's fine. That's very interesting scientifically. But what happened in terms of the numbers? There, it was a huge epidemic. And these, case, these numbers here are really the numbers of cattle with clinical symptoms. By the time they started to test the animal carcasses by doing the fingerprint test, if I can call it that, you can see that there were larger numbers of animals who were positive on the fingerprint test who had no clinical symptoms than were that actually had the symptoms. So although the number of BSE cases is around 180,000 if you count the clinical cases, if you take this observation here and then calculate backwards, you get to some really scary numbers like around 3 million infected cattle in the UK entering the human food chain. That's really, I find, quite a disturbing figure. The good news about BSE, if, if indeed there is any, is that it is almost but not quite extinct and we still have very small numbers of cases. And these cases are still occurring even after the, the reinforced ban on this animal food stuff. And I'm, I'm actually concerned, and I'm not alone in my concerns about this, that there may be other routes or other sources of infection that we still haven't eliminated yet. And if we can't do this properly, then this may be a problem. It's going to be with us for a very long time indeed.
So the UK response to BSE, surveillance of BSE, epidemiology, the food ban, absolutely fine. The experiment that showed that BSE was transmissible to cattle and then CJD surveillance. And in CJD surveillance, we go out, or I don't go out, but my colleagues go out and they investigate patients. They go out and look at their referred patients. We go and investigate them, take a history from the relatives and find out what uh, type of disease they have and look what the risk factors might be. And uh, after doing this, uh, we started in 1990. In 1996, we identified this new form of CJD, now called variant CJD, rather different from the sporadic disease. The sporadic disease, the commonest disease, occurs in older patients with this very short clinical history. As I said, four months, variant CJD, 28 years on average. The youngest patient to die with variant CJD was only 14. She became ill at age 12, which is unheard of in these human diseases. A long illness of over a year with different clinical features, psychiatric features, anxiety, depression, personality change, not specific. Rapid dementia is rare and other symptoms, uh, changes in sensation are common. So by applying, employing our detective techniques, by studying these diseases clinically, by looking at the pathology down the microscope, we find a different type of pathology. And of course, by doing the fingerprint test, we found a new type of fingerprint. And by doing the genetic tests, we found that all the patients with proven variant CJD so far belong to this group, the MM group. And one of the big questions we have is what's going to happen in the other two groups of the population? Are we ever going to see cases of variant CJD in these groups? And if so, when? If you look at the Kuru model, you'd expect the MVs might be quite a long time before they emerge. That may be the case. It's very difficult to be sure. So we believed that this disease was likely to represent a new disease and it was probably due to exposure to BSE in the diet. How, how could we do that? Well, the epidemiology suggested that, to put it crudely, the country with the largest numbers of BSE cases had the largest numbers of variant CJD cases. The biochemical fingerprinting of BSE is very similar to that for variant CJD, but different from other prion diseases. And finally, transmission experiments, firstly to, to macaques, but then particularly, again, done by Moira Bruce and her colleagues in Edinburgh, the strain typing studies showed that it was the same strain of agent causing BSE and causing variant CJD. But this was a different strain from sporadic CJD and indeed different from scrapie. So these two diseases are linked, and I believe very strongly that the BSE is the cause of variant CJD. And we can distinguish, uh, using this fingerprinting technique, uh, variant CJD on the right here, which has this unique banding pattern different from the sporadic disease. And if we do an analysis, you can see the variant CJD cases here cluster down in one corner because they're very highly glycosylated and the sporadic ones are very separate. So again, this is another piece of evidence to separate these diseases. Does this matter? Well, it, it does, and, and is there a problem uh, with uh, this disease being present in the human population? Well, I'm afraid there is. And the reason is that variant CJD is an acquired infection, acquired by the oral route, and the agent is widely distributed in the body. In sporadic CJD, it's present mostly in the brain and in the central nervous system. But in variant CJD, it reaches the brain relatively late in the disease. What's it doing before then? Well, what seems to happen is after you're exposed to BSE, the agent replicates in what we call your lymphoid tissues, uh, lymph nodes in the gut, tonsil, spleen, and it stays there for the whole of the incubation period. Now, we don't really know what the incubation period for BSE is in humans, but around 10 to 12 years is a reasonable guess. And during that time, you have no symptoms, nothing to indicate anything wrong with you, but you could be incubating this disease. And unfortunately, uh, this does matter because during this time, the agent is present in the blood, and we have demonstrated that it could be transmitted 
by blood transfusion from one individual to another. So these are concerns over variant CGD. How many people are infected? What should we be worried about? Is it a very high number or very low? We, we just don't know because we have no test. There's no means of identifying who is infected. It's not like HIV or hepatitis where you can do a blood test and measure the antibodies. We can't do that. Is there a potential for human-to-human -human transmission? Well, unfortunately, there is, and I'll, I'll tell you about that now. What about people who have received blood transfusions from people who've subsequently died with CJD? What do you do? Do you tell them or do you not? And it was decided that they should be told, but that was a difficult decision to make, to say to someone, well, you've received this blood transfusion. It came from someone who was incubating variant CJD, and so it puts you at a higher risk of getting the disease, but we can't do a test to tell you've got it or not, and there is no treatment. That's really very difficult to do, and uh, I, I think that, uh, unfortunately, the communication of these messages is not always backed up by uh, appropriate support for these individuals. And what about the concerns about future waves of infection in these other genetic groups? Is that going to happen? Well, it looks as though it might do, I'm afraid. So one study we did, and this is, there's a lot of information on this slide, but I'll just give you a summary. One way of trying to find out how many people might be infected was to look at tissues containing lymphoid material, such as tonsils or appendixes, that were removed from people who were otherwise normal, and to see if we could detect the abnormal protein in them. So this, this was done, and I did this with my colleague David Hilton and um, others who are here, helped out in no small measure, and we... We looked at thousands of appendixes. I went to neuropathology to escape the appendix as a piece of tissue. I find the brain a rather more interesting organ, but there's no escape from the appendix, and we looked at thousands of them. And of these 12,500 or thereabouts, we found that three were positive. Well, three's not very many, but then when you multiply it up to in terms of the UK population, you get to some potentially rather higher figures. Subsequent studies on tonsils have come out with broadly similar figures, and so our best guess is that currently there may be one in 10,000, or around four to 10,000 people are infected with variant CJD in the UK. And if you multiply that up to a population of over 60 million, it gives you quite a large number of people. The infectivity is unfortunately present in blood, and we've identified four patients so far who have been infected. Interestingly, three of them developed clinical symptoms about six to eight years after they were transfused. They died from variant CJD. The three who died with the disease were all MM in their genetics. The fourth patient wasn't, and she died with no clinical symptoms, but we knew she had received this transfusion. She belongs to the MV group, and when we employed our detective skills on this patient, we found that although she had no neurological symptoms, the prion was present in her lymph nodes and also in her spleen, and we, we saw the fingerprint here in the spleen to indicate the agent was there. So, if that's true for blood transfusions, what about other patients? What about the large numbers of haemophilia patients who, receive, who need to receive blood and blood products to control their clotting disease? There are thousands of these patients in the UK. Uh, we reported this case earlier this year, this patient who had severe haemophilia A, he was an elderly uh, gentleman, died of an unrelated illness, but we knew he had received massive units of uh, plasma products, including some that had been contributed to by donors who subsequently died from variant CJD. And this is the, the problem with haemophilia is many of the products are pooled and you get massive numbers of donors. Uh, he also had been transfused with red cells and had multiple uh, surgical procedures, but when uh, we uh, were given permission to uh, examine uh, the spleen after he died. We found, as you can see again here, you're all becoming experts in detecting this fingerprint in the spleen, uh, the characteristic pattern for variant CGD. So this patient was infected, although he wasn't showing any clinical symptoms. 
And how do we interpret that? Well, when it comes to statistics, I'm afraid I tend to phone a friend. And uh, the friend I phone is a medical statistician, not very far from uh, where I work. And uh, the team there uh, did a, a risk assessment of all the potential sources of exposure to BSE and concluded that the presence of infection in the spleen was the result of infection via the plasma products he'd received rather than anything else because of the massive number uh, he'd received. So this, unfortunately, seems to uh, confirm that the blood-borne route is maybe quite an efficient way of transmitting the disease. So our concerns now in the UK are to prevent this human-to-human -human transmission by blood transfusion now that the primary transmission from cattle has occurred. And the figures uh, we have uh, are encouraging in the sense that the numbers are still low, although 174 is, is too many by any calculation. Variant CGD has occurred in other countries. You can see here a long list. France is the second highest country. And these countries have all had BSE, but to much lower levels than in the UK. Uh, the number of deaths uh, from variant CGD is declining from its peak. It still hasn't gone away yet. And, of course, our concern is this peak may just be the first of the different genetic peaks. Likewise, the number of new patients has declined, but it's not uh, going away. In fact, there's been a slight pickup over the past couple of years. Where is the curve going to go? One interesting factor is the average age of the patients has not really changed significantly since 1996. And this, uh, I think, is a worrying feature because generally if you get towards the end of an epidemic, the average age of, of the, the patients you'd expect to increase. Sporadic CJD, on the other hand, there's been no real change. It's a disease of the elderly, four months short interval and a very equal sex incidence and the, the numbers are variable but you can see here there's no trend towards a clear increase. But there is a trend towards a clear increase of dementia in the UK and if we just take a step back from CJD and look at it in context, one of the huge problems facing the NHS and society in the future is going to be the care of patients with dementia because the numbers of patients are set to increase from around uh, 700,000 now to many, many more in the future. Why is this happening? Well, the answer is we're all living longer, the society is ageing, and age-related diseases, Alzheimer's disease, uh, Parkinson's disease are all increasing. That should be 75%. I'm sorry, there's been a, a gremlin in the, the uh, handover of the slides here. But prion diseases and others are rare, accounting for less than 1% of all cases. Does that matter? Well, actually it is, because these other diseases, although they're common and they're not really transmissible, are, share one feature with prion diseases. They're all associated with the accumulation of abnormal proteins in the brain. The one in Alzheimer's disease, A-beta and tau, the one in Parkinson's disease, alpha-synuclein. Is this just a coincidence or are there some common mechanisms that we can explore? We think there can be, and I'll just uh, leave you with this interesting case of a, we've just reported a, a, a new form of uh, prion disease, one that was first identified in the States called PSPR. It has a different fingerprint, a very unique fingerprint here, but this patient we just reported from the UK has this disease, but he has in the brain also other, other evidence of pathology. He's got a beta protein like Alzheimer's disease, He's got tau protein like Alzheimer's disease. He's got Lewy bodies like Parkinson's disease with alpha-synuclein. He's got all these proteins accumulating in his brain. Is this coincidence or is it actually telling us something about the mechanisms why these diseases occur? And we think if, if, if we look more carefully at how these proteins accumulate and how they're, they're broken down or not broken down, in the brain, we can learn something. So by studying something to do with a rare disease like prion diseases, we might just learn something incredibly useful about much bigger problems. So these are, what, if Sherlock was here, what would he say? What are our research priorities? Well, we need to know what the prevalence of variant CJD is. We need a test. We don't have one. We need to identify these diseases in animals so they don't enter the human food chain. We need to be able to disinfect and decontaminate instruments much better than we are. 
we need to try and treat these diseases. I haven't had time to speak about treatment. Treatment is very difficult for these diseases. And we need to know what the relationships to other diseases, particularly Alzheimer's disease, is. And as Sherlock actually said, when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And on that note, I'll end. I'd like to thank my colleagues in the CJD unit for all their help over the years. And I'd like to end by saying we've celebrated 20 years of CJD surveillance. And here is the team looking suitably festive. Thank you very much. <laughs>